Welcome back to Research Unpacked from the Informed Performance Podcast. My name is Dylan Carmody, and I'm a physical therapist and strength and conditioning coach from the U.S. On today's show, we have Matt DeLang, and we'll be discussing his research around the adductor squeeze test. Follow along as we unpack his paper, Weekly Screening of Youth Male Football Players, a 14-week longitudinal investigation of interactions between groin pain and long lever adductor squeeze length. This episode has been sponsored by Vol Performance makers of Forstex, the world's fastest, easiest, and most powerful dual force plate system. Forstex can help you to analyze neuromuscular strength, performance, and imbalances in your athletes. With an incredibly simple setup and intuitive software, Forstex automatically detects over 15 common force plate tests and analyzes them with a single click, helping you to collect quick and accurate insights on your athletes. To learn more, head over to our sponsor, volperformance.com. Matt, how you doing, man? Hi, Dylan. Thanks for having me on, man. Um, thanks for the introduction. So I'm Matt DeLang. I'm a physical therapist. I'm currently working as the head of medical in FC Nordschland in the Danish Superliga. Originally from the U.S. Uh, and grew up in Michigan. Uh, did my doctorate in physical therapy at Duke University. Uh, while I was there, I had an opportunity to spend some time in internships with the Carolina Hurricanes and Toronto Blue Jays. So kind of got my start into sport that way. But The plan was always to end up back in soccer or football, as I call it now, living over here in Europe. Um, So after PT school, I did a sports residency program at Texas Health Sports Medicine. I split my time there between a sports orthopedic outpatient clinic in Fort Worth. And then I was working at FC Dallas, primarily doing the long-term rehabs in their their academy and helping support the athletic training and strength and conditioning staff over there. And at the same time, we started doing a lot of research stuff uh, around the hip and groin area. Uh, I think my my PhD is kind of called pathology and performance around the hip and groin in youth football players. So it's a pretty broad topic, but uh, I started working on my PhD there uh, under the supervision of Professor Christian Thorborg in Copenhagen. Um, and then in a roundabout way, I ended up actually living here now. Uh, and I'm at, uh, I was at Right to Dream Academy in Ghana for a couple of years and then transitioned up here to, to FCN. So um Working on finishing up my PhD in the next year or so, and then working full time with the football club. That's awesome. Um, yeah, it's funny the the soccer football discussion. I, given that Inform has been you know run by Andy and Matt, who are both you know British, um, I I feel like I'm an outlier calling it soccer, and it's it's interesting. I'm not used to this, but um, you know, I'll, I'll I'll take it for what it's worth. We can call it football today. Um, Knowing the kind of background, knowing that your supervisor is Christian Thorberg and having gone to Duke, did uh, did Mike Raymond play any influence in the sort of development and interest in the hip or was this before his time? Yeah, I think I was always interested in the hip, but but Mike certainly helped uh, helped spark a lot of my interest. So he was my MSK professor throughout um, throughout PT school and, and he was doing his PhD with Christian Thorberg at the same time as, as I was a student there. So um he didn't directly put me in contact with Christian. I, I was fortunate enough to do that through through some other colleagues. But um, of course, Mike's Mike's a, a big name in the hip world, um, and and one that I of course have have always looked up to. So it was great to have him as a professor. Yeah, Mike's a good dude. I've been I've been pestering him a couple times to get him on, and so hopefully sometime this fall we'll get him on the podcast. But um, so. I think it would be a great time to just kind of open up the discussion just around this idea of monitoring, right? So uh, we'll we'll talk about the 
paper as a whole in a little bit, but can you just give us a little brief background on kind of maybe even just starting with what monitoring is and then some of the importance of monitoring and those sorts of factors? Yeah, I think essentially the the way we have our monitoring system set up is we want to use it as a tool for secondary prevention. We know in sports medicine that primary prevention tools are not always the most beneficial because we can't predict injury. Injuries are too multifactorial. Um, Of course, there are some primary prevention measures around the groin that have proven to be successful in the literature. The Copenhagen adductor exercise is one of them. And of course, we we implement a bunch of those um, and, and, and different iterations of the Copenhagen adductor exercise with our athletes. But the idea for us from a monitoring standpoint is that we need to detect groin pain early before it becomes a more severe problem. And our more severe problems are what I would call multilocational groin pain and then pubic apophyseal groin pain. So those multilocational groin pain cases are, um, if we look back to the Doha Agreement, which is a consensus statement published in 2015 around naming the terminology for extra-articular groin pain, we would consider multilocational groin pain to be two or more of those clinical entities to be ruled in. So it's adductor, iliopsoas, inguinal, and pubic-related groin pain. And I think we find that the majority of multilocational groin pain cases are moderate to severe time loss. There's one study from Andrea Mosler back in 2018 that showed that over 50% of groin pain that could rule in two or more clinical entities was more than a, was a severe time loss, and another 30% was moderate time loss. So those are the types of things we are trying to target. Can we prevent the multilocational groin pain from occurring? Uh, I think it's very common for adductor-related groin pain to kind of be a gateway into those other pathologies. So untreated adductor-related groin pain can kind of manifest itself into becoming adductor and inguinal or adductor and iliopsoas, or sometimes pubic gets involved. And those are the cases that we're really trying to prevent. So there's one study from Rachel Taylor and her group in 2018 that showed that of the multilocational groin pain cases, over 80% of them included adductor-related. So Essentially for us, we are targeting the adductors with our weekly monitoring, and the way we do it is by screening uh, adductor squeeze test, and we do that with an objective component using a handheld dynamometer or a force frame or however else uh, you can objectively quantify your your groin squeeze. And then, of course, we ask them, uh, based on the five-second squeeze test that Christian Thorberg published, we ask them their pain on a numeric pain rating scale from zero to 10, and we put that in a traffic light system. So zero to two is not something we're necessarily worried about. That's still a green light. Three to five is a yellow light. Six to 10 is a red light. So we try to combine the objective and subjective components to see where the players are at. And then, of course, using a serial monitoring tool, we can see how their groin, groin squeeze changes over time. So we're looking for drops in their squeeze strength from week to week or a trend in decrease from, you know, month to month. Um, And then we're, of course, trying to intervene and step in before we have any of these severe time loss growing problems. That's, uh, That's an awesome setup that it seems like you guys have developed over time. I think one thing that I was teasing out there too is that not only is it um, like the combination of objective and subjective, but you have like this um, quasi, you know, external like force production that you're testing as well as an internal load response, right, of pain and things like that. And I think um, oftentimes as clinicians or as practitioners, we always want to try and hang our hat on this one measure um, or this one thing that can always be the the holy grail. But always trying to take into consideration, you know, external and internal factors or objective and subjective, because we're always going to deal with 
interactions of factors. You know, we're dealing with humans. And so at the end of the day, we got to take in multiple accounts, kind of like you were saying, if injury prediction's too complex, you know, humans as a whole are too complex for us to just hang our hats on one thing. Um, but I just really wanted to talk about, especially with what you were mentioning before, um, I kind of like ta- diving into this idea of, you know, how to explain injury right? Um, you know, mediators or moderators or interacting potential factors. Um, we'll be getting into the study shortly. Um, but in your experience, have you seemed to find any sort of relationship with the adductor squeeze test results um, and maybe other internal or external load monitoring tools that you guys have used? Yeah, I think it's a great question. It's something that we've floated around the idea of a little bit. I'm interested in kind of seeing, does an adductor squeeze test if if we think the adductors are a rate limiting factor in football players, it's an area that is under a lot of stress and strain from running, kicking, cutting, all of these exposures on the pitch have an influence on the adductors. I've considered it as using it as a as a measure of central fatigue, um, similar to a lot of clubs are using counter movement jump. And I know it's a local muscular test, so it, it wouldn't be considered central fatigue in that sense. But I, I do think that there are times that we've been able to to locate that when we have dips in squeeze strength, we also have dips in our daily subjective wellness, for example, um, where guys are more sore in their hamstrings, their glutes, uh, and not only their groins. And I think sometimes that's a response to a high training load or a heavy match the previous week or whatever it might be. Maybe it's a double match week and the guys are just pretty worn out. Um, so I think it's, I think there's something there. Um, but I wouldn't say that we've, we've, been diving into it too deep yet gotcha yeah always room for future research right Uh, there's always more to do especially in this world Uh, (laughs) and you spoke a little bit before about having the objective and subjective components so we did a we did a retrospective survey on the on the kids at fc dallas because we experienced that they weren't reporting a lot of groin pain but they were having a lot of variation in their squeeze and we wanted to understand do we think that they're just not reporting their pain? So we had them do an anonymous survey after a 12-week block and said, okay, here's the deal. We're not going to look at names or anything, but just be honest with us on this one because we know that there's probably more groin pain on than you're saying. And it ended up being that over 70% of the players said they had had groin pain over the last 12 weeks. And then we asked them why. why. Why didn't you report it when we were doing the weekly testing? And the number one reason they said, was that they thought that if they reported that they had pain, that it would be a threat to their participation, that we would restrict them from training. And of course, young football players want to play football. So we learned very quickly that you have to build trust and rapport in using these monitoring systems. If they perceive it as a threat, they won't be honest and they won't be truthful. So that was one of the reasons that we had the objective measure in there. And it's also just about making sure the players understand why we are trying to do this and that it's not a threat to them or we're not testing them um, with the idea to restrict them, it's it's the opposite. It's that we want to have them be available for a long period of time. Most definitely. Do you think that some of the uh, maybe age or maturity level of some of the athletes as well, just given that you are, um, you're mainly working with youth athletes at the time, um, do you think that has a factor in all of this as well? I think for sure it does. I think I can look back to me at, at 16 years old and playing soccer and thinking I was invincible. Um, I think that's a very natural thing for an adolescent kid to be feeling like you're on top of the world and you can play through anything and pain is just uh, just something in your head. And I think 
kind of the old school thought of playing sports that that's kind of been the way it is of course that that is transitioning now with so much more awareness around concussions for example that we know that we're not just going to play through everything and that there are long-term risks and, and and harms to that but i think that that's still something that 15 16 year old kids are probably experiencing where sometimes we need to protect them from themselves in a way that we are more focused on their long-term development than the match on the weekend I love that. Um, so let's start sinking our teeth into this paper a little bit more. Um, Matt, can you just kind of give us a little bit more of an overarching view of the paper, you know, what your purpose was, um, and maybe some of the big picture findings as well? Yeah, so the the rationale behind this paper, this was back when we started collecting the weekly squeeze test. It was during my time at FC Dallas, and it was actually kind of a preseason phase. It was right after um, a COVID break. And then we were finally all back together. And this is kind of the, one of the things we started implementing. So the idea of it was to do weekly squeeze tests and of course, subjective pain reports at the same time and see how um, weekly squeeze and pain were related over time. So we wanted to understand how groin pain and adductor squeeze strength, strength might be interrelated. Um, and of course, we expected to see that there would be drops in squeeze strength associated with pain. What's interesting about our findings is that squeeze strength actually decreased even a week prior to pain. So it, it, it dropped from baseline, uh, the squeeze strength dropped one week prior to, prior to pain, and that was significant. And then it dropped significantly again when they did report pain. Uh, and that's actually corroborated in a study for, by Justin Crow in 2010 in Australian football players. They actually had the similar finding. The difference between that study and our study, we had a little bit larger sample size, and we also showed when pain is resolved. So most of the groin pain cases we had in our case were, uh, the median was two weeks, and some of them are a few weeks longer, some of them were just one week. But what we found was that squeezed, squeeze strength drops returned to baseline as soon as the pain went away. And of course, we, we can't attribute uh, two weeks of, of decrease, and then that resolve to be because of muscle hypertrophy or anything like that. It's simply that there was, it's likely that there was this pain-induced muscle inhibition that prevented them from squeezing with, an, uh, with a maximal, uh, maximal velocity, or perhaps there, there's some top-down uh, central nervous system blocking from, from them being able to perform a squeeze at, at full, full power. Um, but I think it's quite interesting that step one has to always be that we just have to modulate their pain. If we can get the pain to decrease, the squeeze will increase. Um, we know the decreased squeeze strength is a risk factor for adductor injury. Um, that's a primary risk factor that's been published in the literature. So we know that we want to make sure the squeeze strength is consistent and that it's strong. Um, but sometimes it's just about modulating their pain. And that can be through activity modification. It can be through local adductor exercise. Sometimes it's even regional uh, load tolerance and, and trying to have some antagonistic effect on the adductors. Throughout the course of the study, did you guys have any uh, participants or athletes that had like multiple independent instances of groin pain? In this 14-week block, we did not. And, and also all of, the, all of the participants that we included in the study were uh, non-time loss through the entirety of the study. There was a couple of players that we excluded at the beginning because they had pain at baseline. So then we weren't going to be able to assess whether or not they had a drop when when pain arrived, uh, began because, of course, they had pain from the beginning. 
Uh, and there was a couple of players that fed in, fit into that category, but everybody that we included in the study was pain-free at baseline and pain-free at the end of the study, but they had some episode of pain during, and, and none of those, again, were time loss. Gotcha. Helpful to know for sure. Um, when we were talking about this idea of, you know, measurement, and I think that you had kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, but um, trying to understand or get a better understanding on how you guys are sequencing some of this monitoring process, you know, um, if it's something that is going to be more associated with the long lever position, the short lever position, um, how you're cueing this. Um, can you just dive into, you know, your overall process behind it? Yeah, of course. So, of course, there there are a few different uh, positions to do the squeeze test in. So we always go with a long lever, um, long lever position. So laying all the way flat in supine, and we place the the load cells five centimeters proximal to the medial malleoli, which is just usually two or three fingers. Um, so it's a pretty consistent measure, and then we don't have to worry with a short lever position, for example, where the hips are at 45 and the knees are at 90. We don't have to manage any of that. It's very simple for us, and because we try to do it in a screening sense where we're trying to get as many athletes in, in the door as we can, and right now we're screening an entire team in 15 to 20 minutes every week. So it's not too big of a, of a time cost for us. Um, but I think if we did it in a short lever position, it'd be much more difficult to standardize when we're trying to screen through it so quickly. And the other reason we use that position is that it has greater torque around the adductor specifically. So a long lever position, obviously a longer lever arm. Um, and the short lever position has a bit more hip flexor. And sometimes you can compensate through the core a little bit. So it's not as specific to the adductors. And our aim for it is to be as specific as we can to the adductors. We, of course, have some cases of, for example, iliso as related groin pain, where it actually doesn't get picked up on a squeeze test and they're still able to squeeze okay. But that's not really the the aim for us is to, we can capture those in other ways. Um, so we've always gone with the long lever approach. There's also some decent evidence that the standard error of measurement is is fairly low. Um, it's between 8 and 12%. But if it's the first rep or the best of three reps is between 8 and 12%. That was published by Neil Light back in 2015. And we find in-house after the last two and a half years of doing the squeeze testing, it's right around that 8%. So we can be fairly confident that um, that changes outside of that per- uh, that percentage may have may be attributed to some other change than just normal variation. And that's kind of the idea. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to unpack a little bit more of that. But first, did you guys have any sort of standardization in terms of um, queuing? So did you guys say, you know, squeeze as hard as you can, hard and fast? Were there any kind of like rate of force development considerations or was it mainly just peak force? Yeah, I think... From uh, from the same group of guys that I've been doing this with for quite a long time, I think they can come in and tell you the script because I say the same thing to every guy every week. I ask them if they've had any pain in their hip or groin the last week that has limited their football performance in any way on a scale of 0 to 10, and then ask them to, to tell me which side that would be on. Then I tell them they're going to squeeze. You're going to do one maximal effort squeeze. I will count to five. And then I'll, of course, count out five seconds and then tell them to relax. And then afterwards, I'll say, did you have any pain during the squeeze test? If yes, which side was it on? And that's pretty much it. Then they jump up and stand on a scale so that we can get their body mass and we do everything relative to body mass so we can compare between players. Um, So the system runs fairly smoothly in that sense. Uh, In terms of the rate of force development stuff, we have not... um, 
We have not studied it per se at this point, but we have load cells now that are a thousand hertz frequency. So we have the capacity to do it. Um, and I'm interested in it because I think the guys that have a more difficulty with rate of force development may be the ones that would be even more sensitive to the test. Um, so I'm certainly interested in doing it. We've talked about it a lot. We just haven't implemented it yet. I, we definitely have a few guys that prefer to start nice and easy and over the course of the five seconds get up to their full power and they feel like that's a little bit less taxing on their adductors. And and I can appreciate that. The idea here is not to um, not to create any problems with our screening test. The, there is some evidence in the in the literature that shows that a long lever ball squeeze test, uh, the EMG of that is much less than a maximal effort kick or a Copenhagen or, or different exercises around the groin. So we know that an isometric squeeze should not be um, creating a problem, but it may highlight a problem that is underlying. With this kind of monitoring process, you've mentioned a lot of times that these are just kind of specific one-off um, tests rather than a lot of times people use like an average of two or average of three. Um, is that reason just from a feasibility standpoint it's easier that way or are there other reasons why you're kind of implementing just one-off tests yeah i think when we first started it it was simply just a time constraint we knew that the players had to get out to training um they were you know coming from school coming to do the squeeze test right before training and we had only 15 minutes and that was all that was allotted from the coaches and of course um that's important as well that we're not taking over because we are there to support the coaching staff um, so that was how it started at the beginning. And I think now we've kept it the same way because I think it's, for me, we're, we're able to get good enough data. Um, the reason being that the, all of the players have been doing this for so long that if they have a really poor squeeze, we'll ask them to squeeze again. Uh, and they know what's expected of them, that they're going to perform a maximal effort. We have on our screens as we're doing it, what their, uh, what their previous squeeze tests have been. So if we have something that's a weird outlier and they're not reporting pain, I'll just ask them to do it again. And of course, if it's still a weak squeeze, then it's a conversation to figure out what's changed. Um, but from a screening standpoint, I think one is sufficient. And are you guys comparing this to preseason data? Is this a rolling average that you guys are using? Um, how? What is the reference standard? Yeah, I think it's a good question because there there is some stuff in the literature showing that they they looked at adductor squeeze tests or different adductor strength tests at preseason, midseason, and end of season. Uh, and I think the the intent with some of those studies is more of a primary prevention of we did a baseline squeeze test. Do they get injured throughout the year? And of course, the the adductors are t are more sensitive than that. Um, and our idea being secondary prevention and early detection means that we need to test at a, a higher frequency so we can actually capture those changes. So if we test at the beginning of each week, then that helps us program for that week and prepare for the match in that week. And then we do it all again the following week. So um, I think that's an important point for us is that we are looking at two flags in general. One flag being if they have a, a decrease of around 15 to 20% from one week to the next, we know that's greater than the standard error of measurement. We also try to factor in how training load may have in, uh, affected that. But at the end of the day, 15 to 20% is a pretty big drop off from week to week. Uh, and then the other thing we look at is the rolling average to see, does it trend downwards over a number of weeks in a row? Are they reporting two or three out of 10 pain and then their squeeze is dropping for the course of 
four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks. And those are the ones we want to flag. So we never see that 15 to 20% drop off from one week to the next, but it's still something that is a little bit questionable. That's uh, that's really helpful information, I think, just from the listeners. And I think it, it brings up a good point that's kind of shifting gears a little bit. But when when you see that, you know, flags come up, things are, you know, 15 to 20% different, um, especially with the athletes that you're working with, what does the conversation look like when you're saying, hey, like this this begins a conversation or this starts a conversation? Um, walk us through just kind of like how you're approaching those conversations. Maybe if there's specific nuances between players or positions or things like that, um, how does that sort of unfold? I think the first thing that is really beneficial in those conversations is that we're working with these athletes all the time. So I'm not coming in as an external researcher and popping in and doing the, and doing some studies and then walking out the door. So these are my players, the players that all of our staff work with all the time. And having that relationship, having that trust, building up that rapport is really valuable because then we can go have a conversation with the player. And we also have of course, an understanding of different players that maybe trend different ways. Some guys are hypersensitive and they report pain every week. Some guys are tons of variation in their squeeze strength throughout week to week. And we know that that's maybe a yellow flag and we're a little bit worried about it, but we also know that some guys, some guys are, are kind of normal in that sense. So I think having the context that goes into all of it is the most important thing of understanding kind of where those players are week to week, what their training load has been over the previous week or the previous few weeks, um, and then creating a conversation. So when we first started doing this, we were very rigid and it was more research focused and less practical focused. And the mindset was, okay, if they hit one of our arbitrary cutoff points, they drop 20% from moment to the next, we're doing a full standard clinical examination on them. We're going to try to rule in all the Doha agreement clinical entities. We're going to figure out every little thing that's going to happen here. Um, and I think it's from a research standpoint, that's very interesting. But from a practical standpoint, it's a little bit overkill at times. So I think it becomes more that um, we are more interested in finding the guys that are outliers that are not within their own normal routine um, or the ones that are often reporting pain and often having problems. We're, of course, flagging and keeping a closer eye on. I think that's where the conversation starts is, is understanding the athlete and what their normal profile looks like and then figuring out if they've had variations from that. That uh, I think that's a, a really solid way to approach it just because I think it's it's the combination of the um, research and the applied settings coming together and making sure that these the guys that you're working with know that you're asking these questions because you actually care and you want to make sure they stay on the pitch or stay on the field rather than just saying, hey, I'm Matt, I'm a researcher, what's going on? I need to do an exam on you. Um, and I think that coming from that perspective of I've got your back, we're trying to do what we can is you know always going to be easier to improve athlete buy-in and things like that. Um, given your experience working with not just the youth population, but um, adults and professional athletes and those sorts of areas, um, what do you think some of the the population-based differences or nuances that you've noticed within you know working with these different groups have been? I think that from, so we screen it um, at FCN in our academy in Ghana from U13 all the way up into our first team. So in Ghana, it's up to U18 and then in, in Denmark, it's up to up through our first team. And I think that there's a couple age related differences that we notice. Number one is that the younger kids at U13, U14, and even U15 don't often have problems. Um, similar to how you don't see a lot of acute hamstring strains in that group. I don't think they're strong enough to create 
damage in their bodies in some ways, right? It's very generalized, but but there's some some truth to it where they're just not powerful and strong enough to create a problem. Then we have the period from kind of 16, 17, 18, where players are becoming more physically mature. Uh, maybe their training loads are also increasing. The demand of them is increasing. Uh, and I, I think there's a, even a special category for the players that are in that age but are high-profile players, and maybe they're playing up in age group or maybe they're training with the first team. And from a physiological perspective, they're, they're close to their red line every day on the pitch. They're going everything they can just to keep up. And I think those kids seem to be um, flagged often. Um, I think that's a trend that we will see. The guys that are playing up in age group that are maybe physiologically, uh, you know, batting above their uh, above their average, if you will, we have a tough time with them sometimes. Um, but then when we get into the first team, our first team here trends very young. Um, most of the squad is under twenty three. We have a couple guys that are a bit older and veterans, but we have a very, very young team. Uh, I know last year we were one of the youngest teams in Europe. So from that standpoint, I, we almost treat it like an academy um, from the perspective of how their groin profile looks. So we know the, the pubic symphysis growth plate doesn't close until somewhere around 20, 21, 22 years of age. Um, so we can still see pubic apophyseal problems and we can still see the same profile type of injuries. but um, of course, the, the idea of the monitoring system is that we don't see any of those in our population. And fortunately, we haven't had any of those in quite some time. But uh, in terms of their, their strength profiles, uh, the other piece that we've, we've looked at in-house a little bit, it actually looks like our, our groin squeeze strength plateaus at U19 and then is maintained into the first team, but they don't get any stronger at that point, um, which I think is a bit interesting because, of course, our training load and there, there's many more demands on the pitch in the first team level compared to U19. So I think it's a bit fascinating that we don't see an, a continued increase in squeeze strength where we do see a continued increase in hamstring strength, for example. Yeah, that is quite interesting. Do you think that some of that is just kind of mediated by the fact that um, the the adductor muscle groups and things like that are often neglected areas when it comes to just like a strength and conditioning program or do you think that there's just like other physiologic reasons? That's a very good question. I, I think fortunately for us at our club, we have some of the best strength and conditioning staff I've ever been around. Uh, and I know that we do a, a fantastic job implementing adductor-related exercises uh, and, of course, all, all of the supplementary exercises that are important for football performance. So I wouldn't say that those, that those areas are neglected. And we have good strength and conditioning staff all the way through into the academy as well. So I know that we're doing Copenhagen's all the way through from U13 all the way up. Of course, they're modified. Maybe they're isometric and short lever and then finally into long lever. And even in the first team, we we load up 10K, 10 kg on their on their hip while they're doing Copenhagen's. And we see no, you know, no, no adverse effects to that and no DOMs or anything like that. So um, from a programming standpoint, I think we tackle it pretty well. And that's some of the primary prevention stuff we talked about at the beginning. Um, so I, I guess the answer is, I don't know. I don't have a good answer to your question. I don't think. Hey, you know, that's, that's completely fair. Like we said before, always room for future research. Um, yes. speaking of research and things like that, um, maybe putting more of your researcher hat back on, um, what do you feel like from a research perspective is the process now moving forward for showing that the monitoring system you guys have is is necessary and effective for this uh, nebulous term of injury prevention? Um, you know, maybe the the steps that you guys would take for um, 
studies in terms of looking at the screening methodology, uh, as well as, you know, how that could apply. I think in general, the quote unquote injury prevention research is always difficult because you're trying to measure something that doesn't happen. Um, so to say that we prevented injuries just because they didn't happen, there's a many reasons why we didn't, we may not have had those injuries. So I, I don't necessarily think the idea for us is to, to call it injury prevention by any means, but I do think from a, from a secondary prevention standpoint, we have, we have some valuable work that we can put together. And, and one of those things would be sort of creating an algorithm that says, if this, then this. And we've played around with it and created arbitrary cutoffs that are outside of the standard error of measurement. If you have 15 to 20% drop off, all these types of things. Um, we've also looked at it from, uh, from looking at a player's individual mean and their own Z-score. And when they fall to 1.5 or two standard deviations below their mean after two years of data, what does that mean for us? We, we've looked at it a lot of different ways. And I think... From a research standpoint, it's really hard to pin down because creating an algorithm like that would be trying to address the problem at a group level. But our intent is not to fix it at a group level. Our intention is to fix it at an individual level and find those individuals that might be at a higher risk and to quantify all of these contextual factors that play a role in whether or not they have a groin injury. I think it's very difficult to do. So. I would say from a research standpoint, it'd be great to put together this algorithm that says, here you go, here's the, here's the recipe that works. If this happens, then you treat it this way. And if that happens, then you treat it that way. Um, but I think the art layered on top of that becomes, makes it a little bit tricky. Yeah. I, the, the optimal idea, you know, creating a framework that also allows somebody to take an N equals one approach. Um, and I think that it's something that all of us are striving to try and assess and figure out, but um, it's always room for a fun conversation to have, to say the least. Um, maybe we'll we'll switch hats now, you know, researcher hat off, clinician hat back on. Um, let's say you're going through a screening and you see maybe an asymptomatic drop in squeeze strength, um, kind of like what your paper was alluding to beforehand. Um, what is the process moving forward from there? Yeah, I think so when we've when we've collected this data for such a long time over the last few years, we tend to put players into one of four clusters. We have the players who are strong and pain-free consistently over time. I call that a green flag. We're not too worried about those players. We have the players like you mentioned that have a drop in squeeze strength but don't report pain. And I would say that's kind of a yellow flag where we look again, we wait again until the following week if it drops again or if they start reporting pain or if we're noticing anything. Of course, we're watching them at training every day as well. If we're starting to notice them, grab it, they're growing a little bit during the session or whatever. We've already had the objective drop in squeeze strength. Then we want to step in and try and intervene. Then we have the players that are the opposite, that they have a consistently strong squeeze, but they're always reporting pain. Those guys... Sometimes I would attribute those guys to just being a little bit hypersensitive to the test, or maybe they're uh, sometimes with the kids, they're confusing muscle activation with pain. Um, we can see that happen from time to time. So I would say for those players, if there's ever an objective drop in squeeze strength, of course, we flag it there as well. And then the, the ones that this is really all about are the players that are consistently weak and often reporting pain. And those are the ones that we are intervening with more regularly. 
And I would say from an intervention standpoint, um, our options are often activity modification. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're done with the training session. It could just mean we take them out of the individual session at the end or they take, they're out of the high-intensity blocks for that day. Uh, and then our other options are to provide them more exercise for their adductor if we think that it makes sense in the context of what's going on. Maybe it's a, a little bit lighter week on the pitch and we have an opportunity to do more local adductor work. And then the other option, of course, is, is more regional stuff that will allow them, uh, the antagonistic effect to take over and allow the adductors to calm down a little bit. And I think the other, the other option that is used in a lot of clubs would be jumping in with manual techniques, whatever manual techniques you, you prefer to use. I would say in our academy setting, we are often promoting interdependence. We are trying to promote independence and not interdependence with our athletes. And that shifts a little bit in the first team. Where of course we're we're getting our hands on them when it's necessary, but I would say we are our philosophy at our club is certainly that we want to be more exercise based with our interventions than manual based. I think that all those options, you know, it's it's like the it's a decision making of the clinician at that point, right? It's you have the the multitude of options that you can use, um, as well as also the decision making of the high performance staff as a whole, right? It's it's never just a, a siloed profession, but um, I feel like. You know, this this kind of brings up an interesting question that's been popping around in my head in terms of the idea of, you know, what you would read in a textbook versus what you would actually do as in, like, in reality. And so I think a lot of times you hear maybe from a load response monitoring standpoint, oh, they have adductor kind of symptoms or maybe they just have a drop in performance. Let's take them out of a couple of the more small sided games or the things that have more like change of direction based um activities and maybe we still let them go in terms of some of the longer term like unidirectional running drills or things like that um while that sounds great in theory i know that often theory and application have limitations when put together um how does that really look in terms of the actual training within the coaching staff and those sorts of things when you see that there's drop-offs in performance in terms of does that practical or does that re, like does that theoretical application actually apply in practice? Yeah, more or less. Just I think that a lot of times, like we had alluded to beforehand, it's this idea of we want to have these very clear cut systems in place, and I think um, textbooks do that for us. But I think that what many people find out after reading a textbook is that when they try and apply it, um, it doesn't always work to the fullest extent that they're expecting, um, and just maybe understanding, you know where where your understanding of these sorts of processes acknowledge the limitations of it, maybe a textbook t- style approach or um, where you may actually see the advantage in those sorts of approaches. Yeah, I think the the adductors are under any, under a lot of stress with a lot of different activities on the pitch. Um, there's even a study from a few years ago that suggests that cutting maneuvers are higher EMG than kicking, which I would not have guessed theoretically when I was, uh, before I was doing this every day. So, um, I think the, the number one question you're going to ask is which one of those things bothers the player? Is it the cutting? Is it the running? Is it the kicking? You know, the, the simple thing we can always do is to say, uh, they're going to work on some technical aspects of the end of training. Let's make sure that he's not kicking the ball more than 20 meters. So there's no long balls, no long driven balls, all that kind of stuff. Another option is that in some of those small-sided games that have a lot of XL, D-cell, change of direction stuff, that maybe they're participating in the session, but they're getting a substitute um, for every other every other interval or something like that. So we, we have a lot of different ways that we can play around with our training load. And of course, we have all the GPS data and the physical performance guys are, are tracking that over time as well. So 
I would say that in practice, the theoretical stuff does make sense, but I think it's even more nuanced, of course, than you read in a book. Um, there's a lot more ways that we can modify players than, you know, and I think the the context of that is dependent on your coaching staff and what types of sessions they prefer to run uh, and having a good understanding of, you know, what is a normal match day minus three, minus two, minus one look like for our team? And how does that impact their ability to participate in terms of a heavy groin day or a heavy hamstring day or whatever the context is for any type of injury? So I think all of those pieces are important to be in it and hands-on every day so you have a good understanding of the whole picture around what the athlete is expected to do every time they enter the pitch. Yeah, it it reminds me, I feel like I've probably mentioned this before maybe on the podcast, but it's this idea of being almost like the king of duh is like a term that I've heard before where it's just like, oh, like this is bothering you. Like, well, does it actually hurt or is it, you know, just fine, you know? And like, and it's the same thing of like, sure, we have these theoretical constructs of, um, well, if a change of direction is going to load more than a kick or vice versa or something along those lines. But like, if they kick fine and they change directions fine, then they should be okay to just keep on progressing. And it's, it's one of those things of, you know, we're working with people and they can give us answers. And I think it's a, a very interesting uh, way to go about things, I think. And I think the the other layer on top of all of that you talk about, if they're kicking fine, then good. And if they're cutting fine, then good. But at what point is the load and the volume going to tip the scales in the other direction? Uh, and a lot of that is just trial and error more than anything else. So a little bit of that comes into trusting the athlete to be able to accurately report their symptoms. If they have a little bit of onset, then we can modify the session in session, make a decision like that. So I think that that's, that's another piece is that we need to build the trust with the athletes where they're going to report to us when they have a problem. I love that. Matt, I think this has been an awesome conversation. Um, and I've, I think that there's going to be plenty of takeaways that clinicians have for it. Um, I always like asking this question towards the end with the researchers that we have on. But um, when we take the context of this paper, right, um, what should be some, you know, maybe a one or two tangible takeaways that the paper tells us? And then what are something that, you know, clinicians often can take a paper and run with it. Um, what are some things that this paper doesn't tell us? Yeah, I think the main thing this paper tells us is, is maybe a little bit obvious um, that when you have pain, your adductor squeeze strength decreases. And I think in, in, it, it may be the reverse. We don't know if it's the chicken or the egg. It could be that you have a decrease in your adductor squeeze strength and then there's an onset of pain when you have a, a challenge or a demand of being out on the pitch. So I think it's important not to assume that one comes before the other uh, because we don't know. Uh, and there is, from our study and from the, the Crow study in 2010, there is evidence that says that squeeze strength decreases one week prior to pain onset. And I think that's a really interesting finding that has now been done in two studies. Um, I think there's more to be figured out there. And I think the other thing that this paper does not tell us is it doesn't factor in all of the other contextual factors for what influences our weekly adductor squeeze strength. And that's something that we're working on right now in terms of incorporating our GPS data and our training load to see if three-day and seven-day cumulative high-speed running, sprinting, total distance, accelerations, decelerations have an influence on adductor squeeze strength. Um, because if they do, uh, and as a sneak peek to some of the research we will be publishing in the next uh, couple months, hopefully, Seems like it does. Um, and so if training load has an influence, 
and pain has an influence and individual players have an influence because one player and another player may have different baselines and different strength profiles throughout time. And then we try to also layer in the fact that there's an 8 to 10% standard error of measurement. Then we start getting into a very messy picture of figuring out what matters and how to interpret all of it. And I think it's important that we don't overreact to a decrease in squeeze strength just because we they've reported pain, there's a 15% decrease, and we're pulling them from training immediately. The goal at the end of the day is long-term player development, which means that we need to take care of them in the short term. But if we take too much care of them and they're never on the pitch, that long-term player development can't happen. So I would say my advice on it is um, to understand all of the factors that may be influencing this change in squeeze strength um, and take that into account before we overreact to, to any monitoring decisions. I love that. And it's it's a great perspective on, you know, noticing something and just even asking the questions like, do we even need to do anything? You know, like, can we just get by with not doing anything um, and just seeing how the athlete continues to progress through? And I think sometimes staying out of their way and staying out of our own way can be some of the best ways that we can continue to improve management. Um. Matt, so wrapping things up, is there anything else that we didn't cover today or that you would want to touch on for the audience of listeners and maybe recommendations of future areas to look into for learning more about this? I think when we when we thought when we talk about this weekly monitoring, and I think we are kind of down this rabbit hole of specifically looking at the adductors, um, I think it's also very valuable to consider that there are other areas of the body that are particularly of interest for football players that you can also look at. And I think the hamstrings are one of those as well. So we have started doing weekly hamstring screening on all of our players as well. Um, fortunately, we have, I don't want to say we haven't had a lot of hamstring injuries because we'll have them tomorrow if I start talking like that. So um, fortunately, um, we've been looking at the hamstring monitoring as well. Uh, and we've done it in two different positions just to test it out. So we've done Nordics and we've done prone isometric hamstring strength. I would say from a standard error of measurement standpoint and a variance standpoint, using the isometric is a little bit more valuable um, because there's less variation with it week to week. But from the physical performance coaches standpoint, they like doing the Nordics because then we are forcing them to do a couple repetitions of maximal effort Nordics every week. And we know that might be a, have a bulletproof effect for those hamstrings. Um, so we almost use it as a training stimulus and less as a screening tool in that sense. Um, but I think it's interesting to, to consider that not only the adductors are susceptible to injury, of course, uh, in football players, and then thinking about kind of what a, um, what a weekly monitoring tool might look like that becomes even more developed than what we're doing. Uh, and I'm always interested in hearing other clinicians' uh, interpretations of that and how they want to do it in their own clubs. So I'm always open to to any feedback on any of that stuff. Matt, that's perfect. Um, speaking of feedback and things like that, how can people get in touch with you or reach out to you? Yeah, of course. Uh, so I'm on Twitter or, or X as it's called now, at uh, Delang23. Um, I don't tweet a lot, but I'm always reading along. So uh, feel free to reach out at any point. And then I'm on LinkedIn as well, Matt DeLang. Uh, you can find me on there. Um, those are probably the two easiest ways that I usually get back to, to any feedback. And I'm, uh, 
I'm sure you can tell I'm a little bit passionate about all this groin stuff. So I can always talk shop about about hips and hips and groins and young football players. So um yeah, happy to talk at any time. I love it. No doubt about that for sure. Um and then finally wrapping up uh, a question I like asking all of our guests is um knowing the population that we have in terms of our listeners being strength and conditioning, rehab, sports science, um and also the fact that a lot of times I try to be, bring on researchers and things like that. Um, who should we have on next? Yeah, I have I have two recommendations there. Uh, I've done a lot of thoughts on, on who who I would recommend to come on, and, and both of them are are former Dukies or currently at Duke. Uh, and the first is Mike Raymond. Uh, he was my MSK professor at at, at Duke. Uh, he's a hip and groin researcher and an expert clinician. Uh, he does lots of continuing ed around hip and groin stuff. So I think he'd be fantastic to have on and talking through his his hip clinical pathways and how he treats FAIs, for example. I think it's it's top top work from him. Uh, and my next one is is Amy Arendale. She's uh, uh, she's currently at the Washington Wizards. Was previously at, at Red Bull Performance Center in Salzburg. She did her. Uh, she did her PhD with Lynn Snyder Mackler in in Denmark. Uh, sorry, in Delaware, um, and she was my alumni mentor when I was at Duke. So she's always been uh, someone I've looked up to, and and has been a few steps ahead of me along the way through our career. So uh, I think they would be great guests to have on the podcast. I love it. Yeah, two two excellent guests that I will I'll do my best to try and get on because I think selfishly I would love for them to be on as well. Um, but Matt, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I think this will be an awesome conversation for the listeners to, uh, learn a lot from. So I really appreciate it. And thanks Dylan. I appreciate, uh, appreciate you having me on for the talk and having a platform to kind of talk through some of our research stuff. And I look forward to speaking with you again. Yeah. Awesome. Matt. Appreciate it.